to take your Bibles today, Luke chapter 14, if you would, Luke chapter 14, while the young people are dismissed. So grateful to have such a great group of kids. Uh, what a love to see the Sunday school hour, too. We just had, a, we had three or four rows here of kids this morning singing, uh, starting off the day, and so I'm grateful for that. If, you're, if your uh, child is not involved in our Sunday school program, uh, I surely in, encourage you to do that. Get them uh, here. Uh, we had a great class this morning in the teen class. And uh, just a, a lot of good things there. So please uh, join us for that if you can. Luke chapter 14. Today we look at where a, a story where Jesus compares salvation to a feast. Now, a lot of Christians, it seems, uh, compare salvation to a funeral. That's kind of how they live. Like it's, uh, like it's dreary, uh, carrying a coffin under one arm and a gravestone under the other and moping around and and uh, daily I am crucified with Christ. And although that be true, it should not be a dreary, sad time in our life. When you come to Jesus, you're going to feast. You're not going to a funeral. Amen? And so we'll see that today. Does that mean life is without battles? No, not at all. Does that mean life is easy street? No, it does not. Uh, does it mean that it's 100% better with Christ? Yes, it does. It gives us the strength and power to go through life. I want us to look at uh, Luke chapter 14, starting at verse number 16. The Bible says, Then said he unto them, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to, uh, to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet... There is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Father, I pray you'd help us now in the next few minutes here as we look at this story and more of what Jesus had to go through that day that we might learn how to be a better servant of you ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you this morning to a sort of a social event in your mind with me, if you would, many years ago. It was, in a, it was an event uh, in the home of a very important man. Uh, he was a well-to-do member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of sorts, and, and uh, there were many people who would have loved to get an invitation to this get-together at his house, but today he invited Jesus. We see this in the first part of chapter 14. It says in verse 1, as he went to the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Have you ever gone or had somebody uh, invite you or spend time with you uh, and you know that they despise you but they put on a, face, a false smile and they uh, act like everything's alright? It's a terrible feeling to have and you know that uh, probably all of us have been there but Jesus was in that situation he knew they, no love was lost for him. In fact, they wanted him to fail. They wanted to catch him in some kind of 
in, in some kind of contradiction or in some kind of violation. And so the Bible says they watched him. They list, they went, uh, Jesus went to his home. I think it's interesting. He still went to his home because of his love for him. But they watched him, not to learn from him, not to listen. But they eyed him with malicious intent. Then another person shows up on the scene. Now we need to understand the culture of that day. Mealtime in the Bible days are different than what we would experience them today where we're uh, shut up in our house, the doors are shut, and uh, probably the shades drawn, nobody can see. In this, in this time, there was an open courtyard is where the meal would take place, <coughs> especially in the, in the homes of the rich and famous and the, and the uh, well-to-do and the ones of position. There would be a U-shaped table in this courtyard, and around it would be sort of couches where they would recline and eat their food like that. You remember... Uh, basically one man's head would be in the next man's bosom, kind of like uh, Jesus and John were at the Last Supper. I've tried to picture how this is comfortable. I can't make it, I can't recreate it how it would be enjoyable, but this was the custom of the day. Now, these were public events. People could come into the courtyard and they could observe the meal going on. They weren't necessarily invited to the meal, nor were they intruders for being where they were, but it was kind of a public event, especially for those that were public uh, uh, people in the public's uh, uh, world. Once in a while, a brave soul would ignore etiquette and break in. In Luke chapter 7, we see this with a harlot that came in and, and, and bathed Jesus' feet with her tears uh, in one of these dinners that was going on. And now a man enters. It can be assumed that this is a trap set up for Jesus. Look at verse 2. I'm just giving you some background, by the way, to the story that we have, and we'll get into it in a moment. The Bible says, Behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. Uh, this is a double-barreled trap here. Jesus, uh, could Jesus heal this man? Is the first trap. Secondly, would Jesus heal him? Because it was the Sabbath. Je <coughs> Jesus went on the offensive. I like how it says in verse Number three, and Jesus answering. Nobody said anything. Nobody asked any questions. But the Bible says Jesus answering. Why? He knew their thoughts. He knew what this was about. That's why I believe this was a trap. I think that this was set up. They're going to bring a sick man to see if they can trap Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And so uh, Jesus answering. He knew their thoughts. He asked them a question. Uh, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? The answer is obvious to anyone except if you are a religious leader with a book that thick of ridiculous and absurd rules that they had made up. And so their answer was no answer. The Bible says they held their peace. They had to or exposed their own cruelty. They weren't interested in helping people. They were only interested in trying to hurt Jesus. And that was evident. So Jesus healed the man. Now, Jesus' enemies still kept silent, so Jesus continued, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? Now, the Pharisees knew they would not hesitate to break their absurd rule of no work on the Sabbath if a son or a daughter or an ox or something of great value of theirs were to fall in a pit, they'd get it out. So Jesus said, do that for an ox? What about a man? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus had tongue-tied these biblical authorities. Now Jesus attacks their pride. We're going to just continue to work on, here, on through this until we get to our story here. 
uh, this is a social function, and at a function like this, the couches would be placed in a certain way. The technical name for it is a, tri- a triclium, triclium, something like that. A triclinium. A Got it? You're going to be tested on this later, so keep that down. It's a dining table uh, with couches along three sides. The center uh, seat was the seat of honor. And so everyone would try, and the ones closest were the next, and so on and so forth. And so everybody would try to vie for the closest seat or the seat of honor. Jesus would have seen the guests making a scramble for the best seats. And so Jesus says here in verse number 8, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room or that most honored seat, lest a more honorable man than ye should be bidden of him. All right, so what Jesus is essentially saying, (coughs) instead of grabbing the seat of honor, sit at the position of lowest honor, because then you can avoid shame. What happens if you sit at the seat of honor and somebody says, hey, Buster, no, no, move on down. That's embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, you've got to move further down the, the honor chain. And so Jesus said, sit at the lowest one, and then it's a promotion when you can move up the chain a little bit. So that's what Jesus is talking about, pride here. His conclusion in verse 11, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. With God, the way up is down. Remember that, always. Humble yourself, and God will lift you up. We need to learn that. Uh, with God, the way up is down. So as Jesus is talking, the atmosphere is tense. They're watching him. He just healed somebody in the Sabbath. It just infuriated them. But they're, he, Jesus did it in such a way that they can't really complain without looking like absolute monsters. And so there's this awkward silence. And that is, though, until Jesus provokes a response, or his comments provoked a response from one of the guests. In that awkward moment of silence, no one's saying anything. Let's look at what one man said here. Uh, let's see, verse number 10, or 11. Oh, that's not, not it. Okay, verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that eat, shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this was one of those pious statements that you would make like uh, we might say, God bless you to someone, and inside be thinking, I hope you get hives. You've never done that, but uh, that's what we're talking about here. It's kind of a, 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 a pithy quote, and he's essentially saying, I for one, maybe he thought the host was being unfairly treated by Jesus, so he's essentially saying, I for one, I'm blessed to be eating at this table, but how much more will the blessing be when we eat in the kingdom of God? No doubt the speaker considered himself a prime candidate for this honor. He was obviously going to be there. So he was sitting there oblivious to Jesus' teachings and his own kind of self-satisfaction smugness, and he needed a lesson. And so Jesus told him the story we read a few minutes ago. Uh, The story made the point, and don't miss this point, that many people with the best opportunity will actually reject and not be in the kingdom of God at all. Basically, Jesus is saying, you you say that blessed uh, is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Let me show you what men do with God's invitation. 
And then he gives us this story. Let's break it down. A certain man made a great supper. Verse 16, we look at the meal in the parable here. Uh, The meal was great. This was not sandwich and coffee. This was a feast that he's talking about. These types of meals were put on by the wealthy and they were a thing of great pride and they would make the feast as lavish as possible. And then the Bible says he bade many. He wanted a lot of people to be at this supper. It's still true today. The larger the crowd, the greater the honor for the host. And so he wanted many people to be brought in. Many invitations went out. Verse 23, that my house may be filled. Now, the Great Supper, I think, pictures and illustrates Jesus Christ and the salvation He brings to man. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to Me shall never hunger. He that believeth on Me shall never thirst. In John 4.14, He said, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. He's talking to the woman at the well there. John chapter 7, verse 37, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. There is nothing lacking in this great supper in our story. And let me tell you, friend, there's nothing lacking in Jesus Christ either. Man desperately needs this meal. There is no substitute for this supper. Amos chapter 4, verse 12. Neither, uh, Amos, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We see the meal in the parable. Look at the message in the parable. Verse 17, the message is given to them that were bidden. Now to understand this phrase, we need to know the custom of the day. The host would send out two calls to any type of feast that was planned. It's kind of like we do today with the wedding. You send out a save the date or a, a, long before you send out the invitation and then they... Uh, or, or save the date first and an invitation later. But this was a little different because they would send out that initial invitation and if you said you were coming uh, or you, what's the word? You fill out, um, if you RSVP'd, thank you. If you RSVP'd, then now you're committed to come to the supper because he's going to depend on you being there and prepare for it. And so this was that first, that them that were bidden was the original when they RSVP'd that they were coming. So from uh, the, so the second call, the one that went out, supper's ready, this is when they actually made the excuses. To them that were bidden, it refers to the ones who had already been invited. From our standpoint, I think that it features or, or pictures that the ones who have heard the gospel presented over and over again in their life, and we have no excuse for not knowing re- or receiving Christ. There are people that sit in churches and for many, many years will over and over hear the gospel and never respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it is a distinct blessing to be under the sound of the gospel. It's a a blessing if you have parents that loved you and raised you in a Christian home. This is a tremendous blessing that we need to be grateful for. Yet very few people honor uh, and value this privilege. Look at the precept in the message. The word translated come in this invitation is more than just an invitation. It's a command. It's like the command that we read in the book of Acts uh, where the Bible says God commandeth men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30 The invitation to this feast, it was not optional. They had already said they were coming and now they were duty bound to accept it. Socially, in that day when when you accepted the first invitation, it was... Uh, Very rude not to accept or come on the second. Look at the priority of the message as we continue. The words, it was now ready. Uh, It's now ready. The the invitation uh, is 
urgent here. The message is urgent. Everything must be set aside so that you can come and accept this invitation. It's interesting. This is the most difficult thing they had to do. You didn't have to cook. You didn't have to bring a casserole. You just had to come. Just come. Everything's ready and prepared for you. Come is one of the greatest words in the Bible. The Bible says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be crimson, they shall be as wool. Matthew 11.28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible tells us, Whosoever will may come. Oh, what a wonderful word that is. It's a simple invitation. Supper's ready. We need to accept the invitation. And we need to come and be filled. But then something happens in verse 18. He's happy. The owner is excited. Or the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the owner of the house, the one that's doing this party, he's excited about everybody coming. Verse 18, the, they all, with one consent, begin to make excuse. The first said in him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray they have me excused. We'll look at the excuses in a minute. But uh, this is interesting here. There's this rejection was the rejection of the second invitation. The meal is being made ready, or it's ready now. Uh, they had previously agreed to come, so now they were rejecting. To refuse the first time wouldn't be so bad. Now it was bad. It was wrong. It was rude for them to do this. The host went to all his trouble uh, to make the feast ready, and now they are not coming. I, I like how it says here, all with one consent begin to make excuses. Excuse. Excuses are lies that we tell ourselves so that it is not our fault. That's an excuse. I think that it's interesting that it says they consented. They all agreed. This, this has a feeling of being conspired here. Like they all conspired together. Let's just make some excuse and not go. You know, people will often agree against God. Probably the biggest unity in the world today is unity against God. That's why we have humanism. That's why we teach evolution everywhere. Even though there's never been any proof, it's still a theory. And yet we teach it to all our children. We, don't have, we, uh, we combine against God, unify against God in humanism and secularism. But it is not majority that determines what is right. In fact, wrong is wrong, though all condone it. Right is right, though all condemn it. Right is right. All too often, we approve things in our life on the basis of popularity. The kids that say those magic words, everybody's doing it. Everybody does it. You ever track down everybody as a parent? You ever try to track down who everybody is? It's usually one punk kid in their school they're hanging out with. But it translates into everybody. Uh, we want to do what's popular. Jesus said, listen to this, Jesus said the way that leads to destruction is the popular way. Matthew 7, 13, wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Listen, popularity does not indicate rightness. In fact, often it indicates wrong instead. It is better to walk alone the right, uh, toward right than it is to walk with a crowd toward wrong. We need to be uh, determined in our own heart that we're going to do what is right and not make excuses for it. These three excuses record, recorded in the Bible of uh, those that, recorded, uh, that rejected the invitation. Now, by the way, it says that they all with one... So these are a uh, lot more people rejected, but three excuses, these are kind of representative here. The first we see is a businessman excuse. 
my will. The working man's excuse, my work. The family man's excuse, my wife. Three different excuses, land, livestock, and a lady. Let's look at the three of them. The excuses were foolish because they had no logic. Uh, They were fraudulent because they were not legitimate. Oh, the excuses we can offer in our life while we don't do what's right. Wickedness, no doubt, slays its thousands. But I wonder if smooth-spoken excuses do not slay its ten thousands. Don't make excuses for what God wants you to do. Benjamin Franklin said, He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? Look at the first one, the land excuse, verse 18. This excuse uh, really warns us about the perils of wealth. It describes one whose possessions demand all his attention and he has no concern for his spiritual wealth. This excuse does not offer a good reason uh, for not attending the feast. It did uh, reveal the foolishness of the one who offers the excuse. And this happens a lot of times, folks, where the excuse really just is a, a revealer of your own foolishness. That's what excuses do and that's what it did for him. Uh, He's going to inspect the land he purchased after he made the deal. Now, who buys land before they inspect it? It He already had it, now he's going to go look at it. I've had a couple of cars I'd like to sell to a person like that, amen? But he buys the land, obtains the deed to the land, and then goes to see it. It, uh, the excuse just brings out his own foolishness. How foolish people are when they begin to make excuses about spiritual responsibilities. Unfortunately, as a pastor, I hear, I hear them all the time. If you invite people to church, you hear them all the time too. Excuses. And many times they, they display foolishness rather than real reasons. How foolish people are when they make excuses about spiritual responsibilities. Uh, whoever wants to be a judge of human nature should study people's excuses. Why, and I'm not just talking about church and serving God, why they don't work out, why they don't exercise, why don't they don't eat good. There's just, if you want to study human nature, study people's excuses. The land excuse warns of the peril of wealth. The livestock excuse speaks of the peril of work. Uh, these were used in field work, and unfortunately, Today, many give their work a greater priority than they give their worship. Now, work's important. Amen? We ought to work. I believe in working. The Bible's very clear about a, that if you don't provide for your family or worse than an infidel, we ought to be working. I appreciate people who work a lot more than people who put their hand out. Amen? I like people who work. Even a mosquito doesn't get a pat on the back till it goes to work. Amen? It's a good thing to work. But we oughtn't let work get in the way of our relationship with God. So, he, uh, I'm talking specifically here about those so absorbed in their occupation, they have no opportunity for con- the concerns of the soul. Used to be years ago, businesses closed on Sundays to honor God and to honor the, day, uh, the Lord's day. Now today, when you have one company, national company that I know of, Chick-fil-A, that makes a point of closing on Sunday and they're called narrow-minded bigots and they're banned from many cities. One of the reasons is because they're stand for God. How tragic when shopping and playing and eating and working leaves us no time for God. This excuse shows this man's foolishness. Like the landowner, he bought the oxen before they were proven. 
Now he's going to go out and test drive these oxen. And presumably if the feast is at night, he's going to put headlights on the oxen and go out and test drive them in the field. This excuse makes no sense, and it again only shows his own foolishness. Then thirdly, the lady excuse. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now he's the rudest of all of them, because the other two at least said, I pray thee have me excused. He just says, I just got married, I cannot come. Actually what he's saying, I will not come. He could have come. Somebody should have told him, you're a newlywed. This is the only chance of you getting a good meal for a while, buddy. You ought to go, amen? So I heard a story about a couple that got married in the, the day after the first, first morning of the honeymoon. Husband wakes her up with breakfast in bed. And he has everything laid out. And, and, uh, and he says, starts to go through the meal. He says, you notice how I made these eggs just so, over easy? Got to have yolk. An egg's not an egg without good runny yolk. Amen? So, got to do it just like that. He says, uh, you notice I also make the hash browns. They're just certain crispy, just like that. And, oh, yes, she says, thank you so much. And, and he goes on, he moves to the bacon. You see the bacon? Bacon uh, if it's, is the best thing in the world if it's made the right way. If it's not, if you can hold up your bacon by one end and it stands straight, you got problems, big problems. You can pick up sticks out in the yard all day and eat them, but if you want bacon, it's got to be flopped. It's got some flavor left in it. So he says, you notice that. Left a little flavor in it and uh, made it just so. And he gets to the coffee. He says, you notice how I made the coffee. Coffee ought to, you ought to, I have to almost salute when you take a sip of your coffee, amen? Your coffee ought to be strong enough to open jars for you. You know what I'm saying? That's the kind of coffee we, that we like. And so he says, you notice how I made this coffee, and oh, she, by the way, weak coffee like Brother West Pigor drinks uh, is, is sad coffee. It's sad. That's why we call it depresso. That's what weak coffee is. You see the things you can learn when you just come to church, folks? Amen? All kinds of things. Oh, she said, yes, I'm so happy. Thank you so much. And so as she reaches for the food, he says, now, uh, he says, you see how I did all that? She says, yes, yes, thank you, thank you. He says, now that's how I want this to be every morning from now on out. Now you know how to do it, so you do it for me every day. All right. Uh, this guy had a new wife, and he said, I cannot come. He could have come if he wanted to. He could have invited his wife along. But like many, he disguised his excuse into a disability of some sort. I can't be a witness because I can't talk to people. That's an excuse. You talk to people about other things. Talk to him about sports. Talk to him about uh, the newest weight loss program. You talk about lots of things we can talk to people about. But then when it comes to, I just can't talk to people, so I can't be a witness. I don't give because I have so many bills. You'll trot off to McDonald's ten times a week and do that kind of thing, and, and it won't be a problem. You don't. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying we have priorities in our life, and we make excuses for what's right, and then we do what we want to do. That's not the way we ought to live. I don't forgive them because they don't forgive me. That's an invalid excuse. God tells us to forgive. And we could go on down the line. But in actuality, there is no disability. It's a defiance is why we don't do what God tells us to do. It's never wise to claim disability to perform a command. But at any rate, this man used his marriage as an excuse for not attending the feast. And people sometimes use family duties as an excuse for not 
obeying God. Now let me make a statement. I want you to grab this statement, write it down in the notebook of your mind here. Divine duties do not conflict each other. Oh, I'm trying to be a good parent, and so Sunday night we're going to have family night. Uh, by the way, you can have family night tonight because we're not having church, amen? So that's a perfect night for you. But I'm going to have family night. Divine duties don't conflict. In fact, I've always, I've had kids, I've had eight kids, I don't know a single time, uh, unless one child was sick, I don't think there's a single time in all of our married life that my wife and I stayed home from church uh, on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. I missed one Wednesday night in my eight years as an assistant because of a tremendously horrible snowstorm. Uh, but but uh, we, we made it a priority. We were just there. We were in church. Unless somebody was seriously ill, we were there. And there's no better place to have family night than church, folks. Amen? We all get together. We have a great time. We fellowship. Best place in the world. Now, if you seem to have a conflict in your duties, then we need to examine our heart and our motives because divine duties do not conflict one another. And so, yes, you need to be the right parent. Yes, we need to do the, uh, be faithful to church. We can do those things all together. Divine duties do not conflict. If it's important to you, listen to this now, if it's important to you, you'll find a way. If it's not important to you, you'll find an excuse. That's what this man did. This dinner wasn't important. To, it, this feast was not important to him, so he found an excuse. God's orders may collide with your wishes, but it will not collide with your spiritual duties. Don't make excuses. When men die without Christ, well, they'll have all eternity to think on the excuses that they made. Because, folks, listen to me, excuses will always be there for you. Opportunity will not. So let's not get caught up in excuses. Well, he got angry. Look at verse 24. <coughs> the man uh, got angry. There's a reason for it. The host was angry because the guests had previously consented to coming to the feast. Then after all the preparation... Uh, had taken place and the feast was now ready, they refused to come. And uh, verse 24, look at what he said, For I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. He was angry enough to ban them. Now, the, he, the Bible here says that he was angry, and Bible, by the way, says much about the wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah, and De Deuteronomy 29:23, the Bible says, The Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. When Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, Psalm 78, 31, the wrath of God uh, came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. Paul warned in Colossians 3, 6, For, which, uh, for such things as the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. John 3, 36, He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Listen, friend, the mercy of God goes a long way, uh, but one day we will also have to face the wrath of God if we continue to reject him. Look at the retribution. None of these men shall taste of my supper. The host banned them uh, from coming that refused his invitation. That means if they saw other people going, they said, you know, I'm going to change my mind. It looks like they're having a lot of fun. I'll go after all. They couldn't anymore. Now they were banned because there came a time when it was cut off. The invitation was cut off for them. It brings a spiritual principle today that grace despised is grace forfeited. They that will not have Christ when they can may not have Him when they would. 
We need to answer God's call when He calls. I do believe that there is a day when the great... I don't know when it is. I'm not going to get into all that. That's all up to the Lord, not to me. But I do believe there is a day like there was on the ark before, before the actual destruction came for several days before that, but there was a time God shut the door and no longer was the door of grace open to them. Esau also we hear... Uh, in, in Hebrews 12, 17, he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Oh, listen, friend, never reject the invitation of God. Never make excuses. Do not put him off and continually reject him because you do not know if you will ever have another chance. Sooner or later, it brings destruction. The anger of the host. I love this. I love this. It's such a perfect picture of the Lord. The anger of the host was followed by the mercy of the host. Now get this. His anger did not destroy his mercy. His anger prompted his mercy. And that's good, isn't it? You could even say amen there if you like. That's a good thing to hear there. His his anger didn't destroy it. It prompted it. That's a blessing. Because that's what God did for us. While God can be a God of wrath that will never stop Him from being a God of grace. In fact, the wrath of God only exalts the grace of God. Look what it says in verse 21. He says, So the servant showed the Lord these things. The master house being angry. So he was angry. And then that, uh, that prompted his mercy. He said, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Uh, go out and get them quickly. He had said earlier in verse 17, come now for it's ready. Now he sends them out quickly because there's already been a delay, so this is urgent. Food does not wait forever. These new guests must be notified quickly so they can come before the meal will spoil. And so he's sending them out. And the lesson for us is here, we cannot be negligent in the work of God. Procrastination is deadly in the Christian life. We have to be We have to be all about taking the message of the gospel to those around us. There is today such an apathy of spiritual things, even in our churches. And the Bible says we need to be redeeming the time because the days are evil. I don't think we would argue with that point today. I mean, I don't know about you, but I look around and I see, uh, I have to almost every day, I think, man, Jesus could come any moment. I mean, it's just being prepared. The world stage is ready. He could come at any time. Oh, here he sent for the Bible says the poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind. The poor speaks of the destitution of sin. Speaks of the poverty that sin brings to the soul spiritually. The soul without Christ is destitute of anything good. So sin will bankrupt your soul, my friend, and you will be nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he talks about the maimed and the halt. This speaks of the disability caused from sin. Maimed refers to the disability of the upper body. Halt refers to the disability of the lower body, whether being in the legs or the feet. Sin makes us halt so that we can't walk in God's way. Maimed makes us so that we can't serve God. That's what sin will do to you. It'll destroy you. And so poor, maimed, halt. And then he also included the blind. And that's what sin will do to you as well. It'll make you blind spiritually. Christ often called the religious leaders of His day blind. He said in Matthew 15, 14, they be blind leaders of the blind. Boy, doesn't that bring you some chaos? Imagine a blind person trying to lead a blind person. 
And that's what it was in this religion. In Matthew 23, 24, he called them blind guides. But guess what, friend? John 8, 12, to those that are blind, Christ is the light. Amen? And so he asks for the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. Look at where they lived in, the streets and lanes of the city. Luke 14, 21, the highways and the hedges. In verse 23, outside the city. This is where the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind would be found. The highways here refer to the public roads outside the city. The hedges refer to those thorny bushes planted around fields to form fences. Listen, sinners are found on every street. Vagrants are found in those hedges. He's inviting everyone to come. Spiritually, we see the wanderers in the Bible. We are wanderers as in sheep gone astray. Uh, we see the worthless, the poor, destitute, and spiritual. Uh, spiritually, our condition before salvation. And guess what? They were all invited. The picture that we have here in salvation, friend, everyone is invited. Now, we look at the, the greater meaning of the parable. You could say the Jews rejected, and so it was open to the Gentiles. But the point being here is that Jesus Christ invites everyone to come to Him. I don't know how you could be a Calvinist and read this passage. I mean, Jesus, God's not willing that any should perish. He would that all would come to repentance. I'm so glad today that He calls the wanderers. Because there wasn't so many years ago I was wandering in my sin, blindly thinking that my religion could do for me what it never could. Because religion cannot save you, friend. Religion can't take you to heaven. Religion can do nothing for you but make you miserable, and uh, it can just occupy you. It's like a rocking chair. It'll keep you busy. It just won't take you anywhere. Amen? That's what religion is. But I'm glad... I'm glad He calls the wanderers because I was wandering. I'm glad He calls the worthless because that's exactly what I was until the blood of Christ washed me white as snow. Listen, friend, we are nothing without the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 22, I like this here. The Lord said, uh, the servant said, Lord, it is done. So they did it. They did exactly what He said. But He said, and yet there is room. I love those words, yet there is room. By the way, friend, there's still room today at the foot of the cross for you. Yet there is room. The master did not want empty seats. He had prepared a great feast and much food and drink was on hand. He did not want it to be wasted. He needed a full crowd. So he said, compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Before it was an invitation. Now they're going to compel them. And he wanted them to go out and to actually work at bringing people in. To compel them to come in in our spiritual application is to awake and to arouse sinners to want to come and see Christ. The idea that we are only to give the gospel facts and nothing more is not found in this parable. We're to do more than just be dispensers of information. We're to be dispensers of inspiration. Uh, Lord, What the Lord did for me in my life and actually try to reach people where they were at. And it, sometimes, it, look, I'm, I encourage you to be an attractive Christian, handing out tracts, constantly giving uh, the gospel out. That's good. Sometimes we don't have a chance to talk. We're in line or something, and I don't uh, be disrespectful to other people. So sometimes just handing a tract. But when we have opportunity to talk to people, uh, be more than a dispenser of information. Dispense some inspiration. Let them know what Jesus Christ did for you in your life and make them desire it too. Uh, we are to plead with sinners to come to Christ. Compel them, the Bible says. The fact that there is more room emphasizes the great willingness of God to save sinners. He says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. 
He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I did not know this, but this is the uh, before, but this is the last sermon that D.L. Moody preached, this, this passage. The last passage he preached from in Kansas City in 1899. His title was simply this, Excuses. In the service, while he was preaching, he felt a throbbing in his chest. Uh, while he was preaching, he, had to, uh, he, he went and held on to the organ uh, to keep from falling as he finished his message. Uh, Fifty people were saved that night. He died a short while later. But he gave the invitation. And this is what he said, All things are ready. Come to the feast. Listen, friend, the invitation is still open to you today. Supper's ready. Will you come to that, uh, will you come, uh, to that feast that he's invited you to? Have you ever accepted the invitation? And now for you that are believers, say, yes, Pastor, I've accepted the invitation. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. Let me ask you this. How much of your life is wrapped up in excuses rather than in doing God's work? What do you not do in your life because of excuses? Oh, we break. Listen, we, we can make a quick, flippant statement about it, but start examining your life. I was doing that a little bit uh, in my own life, and, and uh, so I'm preparing this thing. What kind of excuses do I make? And I find I make a lot more if you, if you start examining yourself. What excuses do we offer to not do what God tells us to do? Most of them are invalid. Some of them show our own foolishness. What are we going to do today? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ's invitation to his feast, you don't know whether you're saved or not. You're just not sure. The altar today, friend, is open for you. And then, dear Christian, I think it's a great challenge of the, of, of the many, many times that we might make excuses as to what we do for God. How about you today, friend? As she begins to play, would you stand along with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed, the altar is open. If you're here today, you would like someone to take a Bible and show you how you can know that you're going to heaven. That today, if you're a Christian and you're, you just know I've been too reliant on excuses. Take them out of my life. Do what God wants me to do.